Good morning, Crossroads. I just want to take a minute and welcome our campuses. First off, to the online campus, wanted to say good morning and welcome to you. Uh, to Lexington, uh, Lexington's a great place. My wife is actually from Lexington. We want to welcome our Lexington campus. But I'm from Shelby, born and bred Whippet. So Shelby campus, welcome. We're glad you're here with us today. So uh, here at Park Avenue, We've been doing something pretty special this week. Um, for those of you who are here at Park Avenue, you may have noticed this when you came in. There are thousands of backpacks lining the back of the sanctuary. Um, what this is is Crossroads has partnered for years with um, the new store in order to provide backpacks and supplies school supplies for students who need them in the area. So we've had teams in here all week preparing those backpacks. I've got some numbers right here. I want to make sure I get them right. 2,100 backpacks, 209 volunteers that came from all the campuses, and 702 hours put in. So it's, it's really exciting. But the reason that they're actually in the, in the auditorium today is because we want to take a moment and, and pray for the students who will be getting those backpacks. So uh, if you would bow your heads with me for just a moment. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful to you for the opportunity to, to partner with organizations in our community, uh, to serve the students of our area, to provide them with, uh, with things that they need, Lord. For uh, We know that those gifts come from you. We know that you are the provider, you are the master, Lord, and, and we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of, of you blessing our community. Lord, we pray for the students who uh, will be getting these backpacks. Lord, we pray for a great school year, but more importantly, Lord, we pray that their hearts would be drawn to you, that they would, uh, that they would recognize what you have done for them, that they would call you and claim you as Lord and Savior, Lord. So we, uh, we pray for those students, those 2,100 students who will be receiving these backpacks, Lord. May you bless them greatly, and may you draw them to you, and may you receive all the glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, those campuses that I was talking about, Lexington and Shelby, just a reminder, I think they've already announced it, but we will be changing our campus uh, service time starting August 30th. Uh, both Lexington and Shelby will be consolidating down to a 10 o'clock service. So there will be one service at each campus at 10 o'clock. Um, we've got another uh, cool thing going on this weekend. There is a group called Encourage Foster Care that will be out in the lobby here at Park Avenue. I know that there are materials at the other campuses. This is a, a great chance just to get some information, to, to sign up for a class, to, to learn about the fostering or adoption process. I have uh, a lot of friends who have gone through either fostering or adoption, and it is, uh, it is a challenge, but it is such a blessing, it is such, uh, and there's such need in our community. So if you, uh, if you are at all interested in that, or if you, even, even just a little bit, please stop out at the table, gather some information, and, and maybe they can help you at least process through that. Today, I believe, is August the 9th, which... Uh, it's a pretty special day at our house. Uh, today is actually my mother's birthday, but it's also my daughter's birthday. Um, she is turning 14 today. And the reason I bring this up is last year on August the 9th, 
I had the opportunity to baptize her at the outdoor service here at Park Avenue. So just as, as a reminder of that, okay, <laughs> thank you. Just as a reminder, we have that coming up next week. It's not on the 9th this year, it's on the 16th. If any of you are interested in baptism, we would love to have you stop at Next Steps and sign up. If you need to talk to someone uh, about that, we would love to... Uh, give you some direction, give you some information. So we will be celebrating that next weekend um, at 5 o'clock, which does mean our 5 o'clock service will not be happening next week. But uh, that will be happening here at the Park Avenue campus. It will be a great celebration again. Um, and we would love to have you either be baptized or come celebrate with those who are being baptized. So happy birthday, Mom. Happy birthday, Annie. And I think we're ready to go. I got through my announcements. So we're continuing in our series called Weird, Our Identity in the New Normal. And we've been in Ephesians. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 5. That's page 978. Ephesians chapter 5, page 978. And while you turn there, I want to I share a story. I've, I've uh, spent 20 years of my life as a teacher and as a coach. And I, I coached multiple sports. I coached basketball. I coached a little bit of football, a little bit of baseball and, and, and softball. And uh, I just wanted to, to share with you one of the experiences I had as a coach. It, it was, I had been coaching for six or seven years, so I had some experience and I, I began to understand the rhythms and things of coaching. And there's always one important date in a softball season that you want to be careful of as a coach. And that's prom weekend. Ironically, the OHSAA tournament usually falls on prom weekend. So we tried our best to get a higher, to get a better seed so that we would, it would be possible to dodge prom weekend so that we wouldn't have games. And we, we were able to do that most seasons. But every Friday, every Friday before prom, I would sit my team down. And, and sit, them in a, sit them in a group, and we would talk through their responsibilities for that weekend. Now, see, I have four daughters, and at that time, they were all about this big or smaller. I had, you know, and I had my daughter in that group, and we're talking about, hey, you know what? You need to make responsible choices this weekend when you're going out for, for prom. You need, to, you need to remember that this is more than just a weekend here. We're, our, our season, our tournament, depends on some of the choices you make this weekend. And I, I pulled my little daughter up and I said, but here's something more important than that. I said, this little girl looks at you and she imitates the things that you do. She looks at you. When she goes home and we play wiffle ball in the backyard, she doesn't pretend to be Albert Pujols and hit home runs. She pretends to be you. You know, these 16 and 17 and 18-year-old girls. I said, she pretends to be you in the backyard. You are her role model. You are the one she imitates. So when you go out this weekend, I want you to understand that, that I'm counting on you as a parent. That I'm counting on you to be, to be someone worthy of being imitated. And I don't want to have to Monday explain why you're no longer on the team. Because you made a bad choice. You know, and, and she's standing there. She's probably four or five. You know, and she just 
looked at those girls like they were, you know, they were superheroes. She had her own little jersey, you know, that, that matched theirs. She just wanted to be like them. You know, and that's not, a, that's not an uncommon thing. That's not an uncommon concept. Kids do that all the time. It's part of how we learn. It's part of how we develop. You know, Pastor Dave, a couple weeks ago, talked to, I don't know if you remember this or not, but he talked about the Be Like Mike, the Michael Jordan uh, era. And he talked about how he, when he was a kid, he would play basketball and he would jump and stick out his tongue. Um, ironically, I've played basketball with him. He still does that. That is not a childhood thing. You know, and and it, it happened all around, all around the world. Everybody wanted to be like Michael Jordan. You know, this isn't just a child thing that we imitate. We imitate as adults. You, know, you want proof? NFL Sunday. How many adults are wearing jerseys of some player on the field? Well, it's not just sports either. How about fashion? You know, after the Oscars, all those, all, there are shows about the dresses and the, and the I don't know, tuxedos. Or I don't, I'm not a fashion guy at all. But, you know, there are shows in, and on the shopping channel, those dresses get imitated quickly and, and they're sold. And, and we want to we be like our, our star, the stars that we see. It's part of our nature to imitate. So I have a question for you this morning. Who is it that you're imitating? Who is it that you are modeling your life after? Well, let's go into God's word. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. But don't miss this. Be imitators of God, but it says, just like beloved children, as beloved children, that we're called to imitate God the same way a child imitates a parent. That we're called to imitate God so that we take on the characteristics that he has. You know, we've been establishing through this whole series what our identity is in Christ. You know, that we, were, that we were chosen before the foundations of the earth to be his children. That we, while we walked in darkness, while we walked as sons of disobedience, even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he brought us new life. He restored us. He lifted us up. That we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own doing. It's the work of God so that no one may boast. And that we're to go and do the good works that he prepared ahead in advance for us. You know, that we're, we're to unify as the church. Unify as the body. You know, that identity, all, all, that, all that ties together. Well, here it is again. That we're to be imitators of God. Modeling our lives after him. Imitating what he does. Children imitate everything they see. And that's how we're supposed to imitate Christ. Or to imitate him like beloved children. So Paul is going to lay out what that looks like in the next um, uh, chapter plus. I know some of you uh, really love when we like take a verse and we study just really in depth on one verse. And there are others of you who it drives you crazy because you think we're going to be in Ephesians for like nine years. Okay. Well, second group, you're going to be happy today. Pastor Dave gave me a chapter 
plus nine verses of the next chapter. So we are going to be moving today through the book of Ephesians. But let's go back, let's go back and look at that verse again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, Pastor Dave has done a great job also of bringing out, there's a, there's a repetitive theme in the book of Ephesians of walking. And that's going to come up three times today. Three different descriptions of how we are to walk. And this first one is, it says we're to walk in love. That we are to walk in love. And that sounds really nice and, and really, you know, pleasant and not as challenging probably as it really is because look at the rest of that. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He gave himself up for us. A sacrificial love. Not a love that's selfish. Not a love that, that's driven by what we want. Love that is sacrificial. And he gave himself up for us. Men, men in this room, I want you to remember those words, okay? He gave himself up for us, because we're going we're gonna to touch on those a little later in the message today. Remember that phrase, he gave himself up for us. But you see, Paul's really clear here, he's spelling out that love is not about us, it's not about ourselves, it's about offering, it's about sacrifice, it's about giving up what you want, it's about being obedient to God. You know, I think, of, I think of Christ when he was in the garden, the night before he died. He's praying in the garden. And he says, Father, if you can take this away, please take it away. He knew what was coming the next day. He knew the, the, the pain and the agony and the sacrifice that he was going to have to go through, both physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. He knew what was coming. And he said, if you can take this away, please take it away. But not what I want, not my will, but yours be done. You know, that's, that's the attitude that Paul is displaying here. That's the attitude that Paul is describing. It's, it's following God's will rather than our own. If God says one thing and we want another, it's going the way that he directs us. Love that is obedient to God. You know, in, the, in, a, in a few verses, we're going to read about trying to discern the will of God, trying to follow what he wants for us. Paul goes on to describe walking in love, what it looks like and what it should not look like. Let's pick it up in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covet covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I'm going to pause there for just a second. The sons of disobedience, that's a phrase that Paul used back in chapter 2 to describe us before Christ got a hold of us, before, before he changed our lives, before he changed the direction of where we were, he called us sons of disobedience. We used to walk in those ways. 
but it's changed because we follow Christ. It's that same words, it's the same imagery again. The sons of disobedience. Okay, let's pick it up again. Uh, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. It doesn't say you were in darkness. It says you were darkness. We were all evil. There was no one who was righteous. We, we all chose the wrong path, but God still chose to redeem us. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Because of what Christ has done, you have, you have changed from darkness to light. Not even just what, how we live, but who we are, our identity. That's the difference between being in darkness and being darkness. There's a difference between being in light and being light. Our identity is now light because of what Christ has done. All right, here's, here's that word again. Walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So here's our second command about walking. We're first supposed to walk in love, and now it challenges us to walk in light. To walk in light. And light throughout Scripture represents righteousness. It represents the, the, the ways of God. The light versus the darkness. And we're called to walk in the light. If you look back, as, as Paul describes this, if we apply it to our lives, if there is something that you are trying to hide, that probably means that that's something you shouldn't be doing. You know, he talks about exposing, ex- exposing our acts to the light. Don't hide them in darkness. But when it is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that is visible is light. So we're, we're instructed ab- about how to deal with our battles, about how to deal with our sin, about how to deal with our failures. We're supposed to call them out. That you need to have someone that, that you that, that you can count on, that you're accountable to, someone that you can share your struggles with and be open and honest so that we're not hiding that, but we're bringing it out in someone who's praying for you, someone who's encouraging you, someone who's giving you a rough time when you need a rough time, someone who's providing discipline. There are times when you need a pat on the back and there are times when you need a kick in the butt and you need somebody in your life who can do both of those things at the right times. Find someone to hold you accountable. Get it out in the light. Look at the promise in verse 14. At the end there it says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Don't miss this because this is really cool. What happens is what was darkness becomes light. You're like, well, how can that be? Because what has happened is that darkness, God has taken and he has redeemed it. He will take the the faults of our life, he will take the sins of our life, and he will have victory over those. That, That our struggles will become his victories. That our failures will become his victories. 
that he will receive praise even for the things that we've messed up. That's what that verse means. That's what that promise is. Our darkest secret sins, when exposed to the light of Christ, become his victory and become light. Let's, let's pick up again in verse 14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love this verse. It's like, hey, wake up, wake up. In the middle of, in the middle of this passage about how to live, he's like, hey, Ephesians, wake up. Pay attention to what's going on here. I'm reminded of... Uh, when I was in high school, I, uh, I got an opportunity to go to a basketball camp. Uh, it was by invitation only, so you had to have some coaches nominate you, and, and there were qualifications. I got to go out to this big national camp out in Pittsburgh, in the Pittsburgh area. And it was, you know how, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but there's always, there's always another level Wherever, when you think you're really good, there's always somebody better. Well, I learned that that week. We went out the first day, and they lined everybody up, and they just sectioned us off in five and made us teams and threw us out there. It was kind of a tryout. And the guy I was standing beside the following year was playing in the national championship on TV. Let's just say I had trouble even getting off a shot. Everything got blocked. It was, it was quite a week. But I remember this vividly. We get there, we do our tryout, you go back to your dorms, it's the first night, and they say, you need to be at breakfast at 6 a.m. I'm like, that's not happening. That's not happening. I've been playing basketball all day. I am not getting, I'm skipping breakfast. Uh, no. At 5.45, the door to my room opens. I didn't know I was sleeping. This guy walks in my room. He's about 6'7", 260. And he takes this whistle, and he just blows this whistle as loud as possible. They walked into every room, and this was the wake-up call. Got everybody, every player went to breakfast. Every player. We had morning calisthenics and breakfast, and nobody missed, not one person. But you see, that's kind of the image that Paul's given here. He's like, wake up to what's going on here. Don't let that sin exist. Don't let that sin, don't let that sin rise up. But walk in the light. Wake up to what's going on. This is big. This is huge. Awake, O oh sleeper. Wake up. Wake up. I should have gotten some big giant guy to come in here and blow a whistle. Get everybody's attention. Look at those words. Awake, arise from the dead. Arise from the dead. Awake. And, and look at what's surrounding that passage. What did we talk about before? We were talking about how we deal with sin. And that's, that's what surrounds it on the back end too. So right in the middle, Paul's giving us a giant wake up call. Wake up. All right, we'll pick it up in verse 15. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time, 
because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what is the will of understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul's direction here is that we're to walk in wisdom. That we're to, we're to be careful about the path that we walk. We're to be careful about the direction that we head. That we just don't do it blindly without thinking, but we're called to walk in wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this, pa- this part of the passage kind of seemed like a downer. You know, there's a lot of don't do's here. God's warning us against sexual sin, impurity, filthy or crude talk, covetousness, drunkenness. He's giving us those things not to do. But I don't know if you noticed this or not, but mixed in there are the things that we are supposed to do. Mingled in in there are also the things that we're supposed to do. Look at verse 4. It says, be thankful. Let there be thanksgiving. In verse 13, we talked about this before, that we're supposed to be accountable, that we're supposed to confess, that we're supposed to, for anything that becomes visible is light. Verse 18, that we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 19, that we're to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in our hearts. I'm really glad that that's supposed to be done in the heart because I can't sing a lick. But how are we going to address one another with psalms if we're not reading the psalms and diving into the Word of God? You know, these are the things that we are called to do. Verse 20, giving thanks. Notice that's a repetitive one, common theme that Paul has for us. And in verse 21, that we're called to submit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting. That is a, that is a charged word. As a charged word in our culture. And we're about to get into one of, the, one of the passages that a lot of people really do battle over. Um, to give you a little bit of background, this Wednesday will be my 20th wedding anniversary to my wife, Angie. We'll be 20 years. And I tell you that because I wish at our wedding I had chosen this passage. I do. I wish I had chosen this passage to spell out what our marriage should look like. We did the First Corinthians thing, which is all great. You know, it describes love, and that, that's really cool. It's a, it's, a, it's a great passage. I don't mean to downplay that. But here, here Paul really lays out what a marriage is supposed to look like and why. You know, those same softball girls that I sat in a huddle and talked about prom with, I also had a a time where I sat down with them and talked about marriage. I said, you know what, when you go out and and you're you're in college or after you you got a job or or whatever whatever your next steps are in life, when you get to the point when you are deciding about a spouse, when you're doing a, a, a serious dating relationship, I said, don't look for somebody who will give you a 50-50 relationship. You don't want a 50-50 relationship. I said, you're not, t- give and take isn't supposed to be 50-50. 
I said, don't look for somebody who you're willing to give 60% and take 40. I said, don't look for somebody you're supposed to give 70% and take 30. Don't look for somebody you're supposed to give 80% and take 20. Speed it up a little bit. I settled on 95. When you're willing to give 95% of the time and take 5%, I said, that's probably a pretty good balance. I said, you need to, be, you need to find a man that you're willing, that you're willing to give 95% of the time. And they looked at me like I was from the 1600s. I said, but on the other side, what you need to do is you need to find a man who is also not looking for 50-50, who is willing to give to you 95% of the time. I didn't do 100 and zero because I didn't want anybody to be a doormat and just get walked on. But the idea is that in a relationship, if both of you are surrendering your desire for the other person. That's what this is supposed to look like. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Let's look at verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Yeah, I just, I saw it. Husband, I saw the elbow. I saw it. If your elbow and your wife, you're in big trouble with what's coming later, guys. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You see, the role of the wife is to imitate the church. This is the picture that Paul gives us. The wife has the role of imitating the church. It's a pretty good thing to imitate. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I know that that stings a little bit, okay? But it doesn't stop at that passage. Remember the 95 and 5? At first, that didn't sound so good either until you heard the other side. It's the same thing here. Wives, you're called to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. That's part of the picture, That's part of the picture. But you see, our culture has taken this verse completely out of context. It's twisted the meaning of the word submit. Husbands take this and they might use it the wrong way because if you pull a one verse out, you can change the meaning greatly. You see, Paul was painting a picture. And if you stop here, you don't see the picture. You just see a little bit of it. It gives us a picture of a two-way relationship. So the role of the wife is to imitate the church. But now husbands, this is what it's supposed to look like for us. Verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. Men, do you remember? I told you to remember a phrase. I told you to remember a phrase from back at the beginning, back in verse 1, 2, 2. Verse 2. When it talked about Christ, it talked about how Christ gave himself up 
for us. That's the picture of what we are called to do as husbands. Remember that elbow you gave her? You've got the tougher job. She's supposed to imitate the church. You're supposed to love her the way that Christ did, laying his life down for her. He gave up everything for us. He left paradise, came down to earth, you know, to go from being God to man. How humiliating. He lived on this earth, walked, talked, went to a horrible death, rose again. He gave himself up for us. That's the picture. That's your side. Don't ever pull that submission line out without balancing it out that you are to give yourself up for your wife. It's a balance of the two. Did you hear your role, husbands? The role of the husband is to imitate Christ. I'm going to pick it back up. I know my slide guys are like, he's going all over the place. It's in the middle there. It says, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does at the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is a common, common scripture reference. It's all throughout, all throughout scripture. Actually, those, those words were those words were quoted by Jesus. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Paul's saying, the picture I'm painting is how the church submits to Christ and how Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. He says, that's, the pic that's what I'm painting the picture of, but your marriage is supposed to imitate that. Look at the last part of that section. It says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband that we are called to live out in our marriages what the church church's role is and what Christ's role is husbands your role the hus the role of a husband is to imitate Christ what that means is what did Christ do remember those words he gave himself up for us. So husbands, if you love your wife the way that Christ loved the church, you give yourself up for her. That's what marriage is. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the greatest relationship ever between Jesus and the church. Husbands, we have a tough job. Wives, you have a tough job. You got to put up with us. Are we up to the challenge? Do we love our spouse the way that we're supposed to? Are we imitating the way that we're supposed to? Husbands are you, or wives are you submitting to your husbands? Husbands are you giving yourself up for your wife? If not, I'm going to go back to what Paul said earlier. Wake up, it's time. It's not too late. You can start this today. Our, you don't understand our relationship is a mess. Okay. If we follow this picture, if we follow this picture, this is a path to healing. 
All right, we've talked about wives, we've talked about husbands, children. For those of you who are at a different campus, my children are right there. Children, Paul now wants to talk to you for a moment. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The role of a child is to obey your parents. The role of a child is to obey your parents. Now, this command comes with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I want you to think about this. Scripture says if you obey your parents, it may go well for you and you may live long in the land. What if you don't obey your parents? It may not go well for you and you may not live long in the land. I know there are a few of you who know the rules of logic and I just broke some of them. Bottom line, we're commanded to obey our parents. We need to obey them. We need, we need to follow their instruction. Parents, what is your role? Do you see it in there? There's two words that stick out. The role of the parent is to discipline and teach. And those two are tied together. Those two, those two are linked together. Discipline and teaching are very, very connected. See, I've made a lot of mistakes as a father. There are a lot of things if I had to do, I would do differently. I, I've, I've learned a lot. Some of it through experience, some of it through advice, some of it through books. You know, there, there, are, there are a lot of things. I'm, I'm a lot different parent than I was when they were first born. However, I want to share one thing that I've learned with, that I've learned. I want to share one thing with you specifically. And it, and it goes with discipline and teaching. Um, I've been very intentional about disciplining my children, that, that I establish that there are consequences for their actions, that they're responsible for the things that they do, and when they make a mistake, there's, there's consequences to that. But I've tried at least once with every one of them when they, did some, when they had a major screw-up that I call them in and I say, do you know what you did? Yeah. Okay. And, and you deserve to be punished. You deserve to have discipline. You, you need to have boundaries. You need to understand that there are consequences to what you've done. Yeah. And they're waiting for the punishment. And I'm telling you, it's usually something big. They usually have lied pretty significantly and held on to it for a long time. That kind of thing. And I try to, like I said, I try to do this at least once where it's like, okay, this is the punishment that you deserve. But I'm not going to do that. You're not going to get what you deserve this time. That, that I want you to understand how God's grace works. Because he doesn't give us the punishment that we deserve. But he gives us grace and he gives us forgiveness. I can't do that all the time. 
You need to learn consequences. But in this time, I want you to understand how God's grace works. And this is an example. I'm not going to punish you for what you've done. Why? Because I love you. And I forgive you. And I want you to understand this is how God works. All the consequences don't go away. There's still life to be lived. But in this, in this situation, you're, your punishment is gone. Because of love and grace. I think as parents, we need to really take opportunities to teach our young people, to teach our children about, about consequences, about, about discipline. Those things are important. I don't advise grace all the time. I know God is, is abundant in his grace. I don't recommend that as a parenting style. But I do advise you to, to, to drop that in there as an opportunity to show them how God works. I'm not God. So you mess up, you're still going to pay the price. There's consequences. But occasionally we want to display that grace and teach them about grace. Lastly, Paul addresses what things are supposed to look like in the workplace. We've dealt with the relationships in our home. Now he's going outside of the home. He's, he's going to show us what does it look like to live out, to walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom. What does that look like in the workplace? Let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 5. It says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. See, the role, I'm, I'm going to address this as roles for employees and roles for bosses. The role of an employee is to serve their boss. And you're like, Mike, that doesn't say that. Okay, we need to understand that this was written in first century culture. First century Middle Eastern culture. The way the workplace worked at that time was there were masters and there were servants. That's how it worked. And that's what Paul is writing about. This is not an endorsement of that culture. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is saying, hey, when you go to work, the person who's in charge of you, you are to serve well. You are to serve as if you are serving the Lord. You're to work as if you are working for the Lord. You're not trying to please him. You're trying to please the Lord, not a people pleaser. And here's the beauty of this. He says, bosses, guess what? Your job is the same, that you're to serve your employees. Do the same thing. Do the same thing. The role of a boss is to serve the employees. In the workplace, it doesn't matter what role you have. You're to be serving as if you're serving the Lord and not man. Is that how we look at work? Is that, how we, is that how we consider our jobs? Do we look at our jobs as opportunities to serve the Lord? We're called to do that even if we don't feel like it. Some of you probably work for some pretty tough bosses. My boss is awful. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, Pastor Dave. All joking aside, for those of you who do struggle at work, I encourage you to consider yourself as a servant of Christ. Not an employee of a boss or a company, but we're called to work to serve the Lord. I know it's not easy, but this is part of how we're called to walk. You see, we've been talking all this, this whole series about our identity. And our identity is linked to the one we imitate. If we follow Jesus, we should walk like he walked. Love like he loved. And give ourselves up like he gave himself up for us. Who is it that we're imitating? Who is it that you're modeling your life after? Who is it that... that you want to be like? Are you taking on the characteristics of Jesus? Paul's laid out how to do that. He's laid out those attitudes. It's not easy. You know, there was a, there was a huge movement years and years ago about what would Jesus do, all the wristbands. And I think that's, I, I don't think it should be a question. I think it should be a statement. Do what Jesus would do. That's how you're supposed to live your life. In your marriage, with your children, at work, it doesn't matter. In your personal life, in those things that people don't know, we're called to live like Jesus. Do what Jesus would do. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for our identity in you. We thank you for the fact that we don't need to, to earn our salvation, that we don't need to earn our way, we don't need to earn our, our right standing with you, because if we did, Lord, we could never, never reach that goal. But Lord, that you have provided a way of grace and mercy and forgiveness. But you also call us to walk like you walked, to walk in love, to walk in light, walk in wisdom. Lord, wake us up. Give us a wake-up call in whatever part of our lives we need it, whether it be our personal lives, whether it be in our family, whether it be at our workplace, whether it be with our, our parents, whatever, whatever, Lord, whatever next steps you have for us, we want to submit to you and bring you glory. Lord, we thank you for your word. May we live it out in this day. In the great and precious name of Jesus. Amen.